welcome to the Sajcast. I'm Mark Austin. And I'm Stacy Roberts. And we are, we are the, the Sons, Sons of, of Joy. Joy. I sort of forgot who I was there. Uh, this is Sajcast number three. Our third ever Sajcast. Today's Sajcast is sponsored by Stacks of Comics. The last word in comics with out of five reviews. Stacks of Comics is hosted by Charles Joy and Andrew Love. And how can you not like a podcast that's full of love and joy? It does beg the question. Now, my understanding is that Stacks of Comics, in a, from a certain perspective, is your fault. That, yes, that's true. <laughs> not, not that there's anything wrong with Stacks of Comics. It's a fine podcast. But, uh, yeah, sort of the reason for Stacks of Comics has been squarely uh, blamed on me. Which is not the same as Inspiration. There's inspiration, and then there's blame. Um, yeah. So, if you wanted the full details, head out to stacksofcomics.tumblr.com, or uh, find it on your favorite podcast aggregator. But uh, in episode number five, the comics made me do it, uh, Charles actually goes into a story about how I sort of, um, well, was the inspiration slash blame for his um, collection of comics that uh, evolved in the last few years. And uh, the story, uh, not to steal the wind from Charles's podcast, but um, the story was that we were in Seattle for work, uh, happened to have a few hours off, and we were downtown at Pike's Market, overlooking the uh, beautiful Puget Sound, and walked into um, a comic book store right near the Flying Fish, and um, I think neither one of us had been in a comic book store for a number of years, uh, certainly I hadn't. And we kind of wandered in there as uh, a novelty and started talking about comics that uh, influenced us growing up. And uh turned out that we were both big fans of a series called The Infinity Gauntlet from Marvel. And um, one thing led to another. He, he picked up a, a copy of that to take back and read on the plane, uh, which he did. And apparently that was the spark that lit uh, a giant vat of gasoline in him. And uh, he started collecting comics like crazy. And um, within, I guess it's been about two years, he went from really not having um, any comics uh, that were recently collected to having stacks and stacks of comics, hence the uh, the name of the podcast. And um, now he is a, a titan of the, of the comic review world. And so you can go there and get all of your, uh, your review needs from uh, stacks of comics. <laughs> So, that theme means it's time for current events. And to be true to the theme, um, the most current event that's going on today is the Supreme Court's decision on Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, or universal health care for not nearly everybody. And here at the Sajcast, when it comes to current events and politics and government, we're looking to take a step back to look at this from a slightly larger view. And we'll get into the details of things like healthcare and finance reform and who's lying and who's telling the truth. But keep in mind that the essence of having a representative government is the notion of a constituency. If you're an elected official, you work for somebody. And one of the things that we've taken a particular interest in here is, who are you working for? The quick answer is, well, the voters, the people who voted for you, the people who live in your district, the people who live in your country. But as if you peel back the layers of the onion a little bit, 
you start to see that there are outside influences that don't have anything to do with the constituency. And a lot of that is geared to where your money comes from. It's a lot like us in, in everyday life. You know, who do we work for? Well, the people who write us checks. In a sense. But we, and I think politicians do this too, is they add a, philo a philosophical bent to the work in which we say, we do the labor of our day in exchange for the money that our employers give us. But philosophically, we work to improve our lives and those of the people we care about. And so politicians also walk that fine line in which they say, well, we are about doing the good of the nation. At the same time, we like being senators and congressmen and president of the United States, and so we need to get reelected. And when you start to look at what it takes to get that done, the answer invariably is money. And the money doesn't come from the million people, the citizens of your district. The money comes from somewhere else. And that's something that every good citizen who has an interest in government should take a look at. Where does the money come from? They don't say follow the money for nothing. And I think that um, in our current politics, the guy with the most money wins. That has been the trend. And uh, last time I looked, it was since Carter, the at least the presidential candidate with the most money has won. Right. That's and probably, you know, an anomaly uh, statistically. We don't want to make causality out of correlation. <laughs> sure. But it is startling. Well, and even if it's if it's not the direct cause, politicians in the modern age, in our modern age, are not reputed to be good, big thinkers. And so they may take even a less uh, balanced view than we are, and they may say that, well, if I have the most money, the odds of winning my election are pretty good, and therefore I will get more money. Which, yes. And then the question becomes, how do I do that? And we've heard everything from lobbyists who say, well, if you'll sponsor the bill I want, I'll host a fundraiser for you and we'll raise $100,000 and that will help you get reelected all the way to uh, congressmen and senators walking across the street from the Capitol building into a essentially a telemarketing uh, call, center. call center where they call people and, and ask them for money. And if you're looking for the governing, I'm not sure that's where it is. And so in future Sajcasts, we're going to talk a lot about who's the constituency of these particular elected officials. And there is the reward for the labor that they do, but there's also the philosophy of why they do it. And I'm starting to think that those are not even close. Yeah, and I guess in other news from the Supreme Court this week, uh, a ruling about that very thing came down, landing on the side of the First Amendment, I guess. Yes, I mean, they're saying that... Um, Campaign contributions are free speech. And I think that it's a bit too convenient. I think that super PACs are like the iPhone. Um, very easy to use, uh, very intuitive, and it doesn't require a great deal of thought. Because if campaign contributions, or if, if money in politics, to, to broaden it, if money in politics was the equivalent of free speech, well, then that would mean that if I wanted to... Uh, put out an issue, I would have to go and get a billboard or something, you know, uh, film a TV commercial. When I give money to a super PAC or even a political party or a political candidate, I'm not giving them my message at the same time. I'm not saying, here's a thousand bucks. I want you to say this. I'm saying, here, take my money and do with it whatever you will. So it's not my message. It's not my speech that's being promoted. 
It's their speech. I'm funding it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I am speaking out loud. And the more disturbing part is, if money in politics can change the outcome of an election, if it can change legislation, if it can cause legislation to happen, or if it can prevent legislation from happening, and one person or one entity can make that happen, then a whole bunch of voters have just been disenfranchised. Yeah, and I think that's my big concern with um, this and a number of other rulings, is that we're extending the protections of the Constitution to non-humans. Right. And I don't mean zombies and aliens. I mean corporations and super PACs. And I don't think the Constitution was designed with a super PAC in mind. It's one thing to say you're a bazillionaire and you want to waste your bazillion dollars on this election as a as a person, right? As a citizen. Um, and we can see that that's your money and that's what you did with it. But here it's, well, who is the super PAC, right? Who Who's behind it and who's funding it? That's all obscured, which is, is deeply disturbing. Right. And... And and let us add, cowardly. Yes. When you can give money to a political party and they spend it in your name, or you give money to a super PAC, you are hiding behind them. You the, the essence of free speech is, the reason why speech must be free is because it must carry the protection for what you say without retribution. And so if you're hiding behind the super PAC or you're hiding behind... The, the DNC, you're not really speaking freely. And so that's why I think that there's something fundamentally flawed about money in politics. What's especially troubling about the super PACs, too, is that not only that they can spend enough money to alter an election, but um, being frugal, they can not spend money and still alter an election with the threat of spending the money. Right. And that's, you know, one of the other, one of the other big picture commentaries to be made about modern politics is how much of it is driven by fear. Yes. Right? Now, in order for a government to accomplish great things, it has to act without fear. But in recent times, and I, I guess we could say since Watergate, um, and maybe even before, since maybe the Kennedy assassination, politicians have been afraid and their actions have been more informed by fear than by courage. Well, it's fear of not being elected, to be fair, not, not of being shot in Texas. Well, that's true. I mean, it's, it's fear of, it's fear of not being elected. It's fear of not being able to, to govern however they see that. Uh, fear of not being able to direct the course of the nation if that's what they grew up wanting to do. But now there's a lot of fear of looking bad. Because what they've done is instead of taking the primary fear of I will not get reelected, they've turned that into I might look bad. And looking bad might result in me not getting elected. So they're no longer afraid of the thing they started with. Now they're afraid of several things back. And that, again, is not a solid platform if you were wanting to say, I don't know, win a war or end a, end an economic downturn or stand up for all humanity or put a man on the moon. Well, my recollection of uh, my early college years when I was uh, an economics and finance major was that there were only two things that moved the market, and that's fear and greed. And from what I can tell, the government is, at least at the moment, operating under those same rules. It's, it's fear and greed. You know, fear of not being elected, and, well, we don't need to explain the greed. Right. But if we are the citizens of that country, then do we get tarred with that brush? Are we perceived to be afraid and grasping? Yes. And is that what we want, and is that how we want to be represented? And... 
is that how you get things done? And being a historian, although not completely reconciled with the History Channel, if you look back through history, all the great things accomplished by humanity were not done this way. I agree. So to switch from the uh, the uh, macroscopic to the microscopic, um, some other current events this week, um, and it's been a while since our last uh, Sajcast, but uh, I had just come back from a road trip in Florida, uh, which was ending a number of other uh, trips, mostly by plane. And uh, I had taken a road trip uh, to take my daughter to college uh, for her first uh, first college experience, and uh, starting in a summer term. And so we drove from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, to Pensacola, Florida. And uh, anybody that's been following the Sajcast uh, remembers in the first Sajcast, we talked about some of our travails on the way to... Uh, Tallahassee, Florida, from Fort Lauderdale, and so this is you know a good three hours beyond that, so it's it's quite a haul, and um, luckily for me, I, I flew out of Pensacola and uh, flew here back to Cincinnati to Studio Z uh, right before uh, Tropical Storm Debbie hit, but uh, the the other people in my party were not so lucky, so they drove back through the storm, uh, but the, kind of the funny part of the road trip. Uh, was uh, otherwise it was a, it was a pretty um, congenial, uh, easygoing, although long road trip. Uh, the the funny part was we were just clearing Orlando on the turnpike. Well, wait, let, turn. let's set the scene a little bit because the cast of characters is important as well. Well, I was yes, I was trying to <laughs> avoid a full list. Well, no, I mean we don't have to give their IMDb credits, but let's keep in mind that this is a caravan. Which, you know, there's only two well, ways. two cars, for sure, yes. yeah. Well, two cars make a caravan, because when we went to college, it was the two of us in one car that invariably broke down. Yes. This is a caravan of two cars heading in the same direction. Neither um, of which broke down. Neither of which broke down, which I'm heartened to see. But then I wonder, what will become of the next generation if they have never spent a full day broken down on the side of the road? <laughs> in the sun, yeah. Is it an essential character-building incident, or is it something that just happened to us, and now we have to make it sound... Like, it somehow enhanced who we are. This is a good question. So, yes, you're, you're right. There were, there were two cars. We, um, we rented uh, an SUV, uh, assuming that we would need a lot more space than we ended up needing um, in terms of, you know, moving a teenage girl. But uh, that turned out not to be the case. And, uh, and so my daughter's car that she'll use in college and the rental were, were the caravan. And um, I was in the lead car with my daughter and... Uh, being trailed by my ex-wife and son. So uh, we all headed up together, and uh, I guess in the way of a modern caravan, there's a lot of texting about, you know, how's the gas situation, you know, do I need to pee? Right. No one speaks. Well, no, no, no one speaks. There was, there may have been one phone call, but, uh, yeah, largely just text. So um, we started out uh, 8 in the morning, or roughly, and so it was uh, around lunchtime that we're in Orlando uh, on the turnpike, clearing north. And it's getting to be the time where people are starting to get hungry. But apparently the urgency from, at least from the other car, was we needed a pee break. And so anybody who's been on the turnpike as often as we know that if you're on the turnpike and you're just passing Orlando, there is but the one rest stop or uh, service plaza, as uh, they yes. call them now. Turkey Lake. Yes. And for, for no the, turkeys that I could see. No turkeys. <laughs> and there is a lake, but I think it's artificial. Yeah, it looks so, like it. Uh, and I myself have a, a horror story from Turkey Lake 
which will appear in future Sajcasts, dealing with nostalgia, breaking down on the side of the road, overpaying a mechanic to not fix a car, and being marooned and at the mercy of other people. Yes. So, anyway, we stopped at Turkey Lake because this was the appropriate stop. It was next on the uh, the agenda. We got warning about a half an hour out. I was like, hey, Turkey Lake is like 30 minutes, so if everybody can just, you know, hold it until then, we'll pull over and uh, use the facilities at Turkey Lake. Almost as if you hadn't ever heard my story about Turkey Lake and you saw it as some kind of refuge, but go on. Well, and it turns out, I believe we stopped at Turkey Lake on our drive down to graduation and one of the things we noticed the first time was that um, the bathrooms were out of order because of the service plazas in Florida right now are all being renovated. And so the uh, the plaza itself was kind of um, not in use. Right, and we, and we noticed this a month prior. Yeah, so there was no, you know, the burger joint or whatever that's in there was closed uh, and the toilets were inaccessible and they had these um, portable, uh, what were they? They're almost like uh, trailers, right? Yeah, they're trailers. Full-on, GE trailers kind of thing. Right. So I assume that's what we were in for. Um, and as we pulled in, I could see that, you know, the service plaza was all a mess and torn down. So I assumed there would be some sort of uh, portables. Uh, but there was a sign that said, um, bathrooms closed, must use gas station. And and if you've never been on the Florida Turnpike, there is um, the, the service plaza area where there's generally uh, trinkets, you know, sunglasses, suntan lotion. And the Sabaros. Uh, yeah, a Sabaro's, um, Wendy's, whatever, you know, some fast food, some sundries, and lots of brochures. Sometimes they'll, if they're in season, they'll cut up oranges and they'll put them out for people. Uh, but that was all just completely crushed, which I assumed it would be. And so um, the other thing that's there is the gas station, because obviously you're on the turnpike. Um, you have to pay to get on and off, so they give you the ability to gas up there. So we wandered over to the gas station, and... Being someone who likes to notice things, I noticed there was a lot of people coming out of the gas station that seemed rather disgruntled and red-faced. <laughs> and so as we got to the gas station, um, with my, my crew kind of uh, squeezing their legs behind me, it was made known to us that the water main had broken in the gas station. Uh, not as dangerous as the gas line breaking, but nonetheless, the bathroom was closed. And so there was no bathroom in the service plaza, and the gas stations was suddenly um, incapacitated. So, um, to make a long story short, we, we kind of had to get off the turnpike and, and continue on down the road. But I, I really didn't have to go at that point, and I would have been quite content to spend a number of hours standing there watching people come in, you know, with this uh, expectation and hope and anticipation of peeing, and then watch that be crushed. <laughs> With the you know the information that the the toilet was closed, so the karma that would result from you enjoying that for several hours would be some kind of bladder problem. It probably would be. later in life. Yes, but anyway, yeah, I didn't didn't get to stay there, but that was kind of the the highlight of an otherwise long and and, and boring road trip. Uh, but we'll uh, we'll segue into some of the interesting things that I found at the far end uh, in the food porn section. It's time for project updates, and in project updates, we thought we'd start with uh, a recollection of last week's podcast, in which uh, we talked about that Daddy got a new stun gun. And so, uh, if you didn't tune in last week, we did get a stun gun, and it worked briefly, 
but not long enough for us to get it to the Sajcast. Well, and because we are amateur, burgeoning, professional podcasters, we can say that the taser worked in pre-production. It did. And then when the light went on and the tape was rolling, even though nobody uses tape anymore, it quit working. So now uh, the friendly people from China, made in China, sent us a new taser stun gun. They didn't even want the old one back for some reason. (laughs) But it was nice of them. So this was the beauty of Amazon. is They reported to Amazon that it didn't work. And uh, right away they sent another one. And so I'm turning it on. There's a nice red light there. And we're going to see if this works this time. Stand back. Oh! Are you okay? I think I'll be fine. So... What we've learned is, um, as you said uh, in last week's Sotchcast, this wasn't at all what we thought this would sound like in person. Right. It looks about like what we thought. There's a little beam of yeah. you know, Thor's electricity going across there. Um, and all this from a 9-volt battery, which is in itself pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, the sound is much more interesting, much more rapid. And I don't know if you can smell it, but there's an ozone... Uh, odor that's been given off by this thing so we we intend to use this at all of our book signings moving forward (laughs) right and a number of other things so we just thought we'd follow up with that and uh circle back around as a project update and because uh, because all podcasts that you listen to need some kind of prop and or sound effect yeah and that was not an effect that was uh, actual taser yes stun gun stun gun so yeah so stun guns made us think of the miami zombie and i noticed that um i think it was just today the uh, coroner's report came out on the uh, the fellow who attacked the homeless guy, the quote-unquote Miami zombie, and it turned out he didn't have any um, uh, bath salts in his system or really any other drugs uh, to speak of. There was uh, traces of marijuana, which we knew about from early on, but uh, that raises kind of more interesting question because it would have been very convenient to blame bath salts or you know some sort of hallucinogen or, or whatever on... His behavior, but now we're left wondering, what the heck? Right, because what we have here is a perfectly normal guy who was perfectly normal right up until the split second where he took off all his clothes and ate some guy's face. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty scary. Right, and I think, you know, we're going to cover this in, in more detail later, but what is truly scary, if you think about it? And what I think is truly scary is that really anybody can just go bat crap crazy at any time. Yeah, I mean, that's the world we live in, right? Is there's this uh, veneer of security and safety that we all go on with, you know, that you're walking down the street and the person that just passed you by isn't about to turn around and club you as soon as they walk by or attack you and bite your face off. So, yeah, that's especially scary. Although, let me point out, and this is not a criticism, but the people who are running past you because the bathroom is closed while you are leaned back against the bumper of your car with your arms folded across your chest and a mercifully empty bladder, mocking them, they might turn around and club you. Oh, yeah. But that'd be very deserving. Yes, that actually you could find a chain of, what they call a chain of causality from one to the other. The Miami zombie was just a guy who just went crazy all at once. So this week, we are going to uh, unprecedentedly deviate from our previous established uh, organizational structure for the Sajcast, and we're going to combine project updates and reviews because they're both going to be about zombies, and we think that they are uh, tangentially enough related so that we can talk about them together 
And so instead of a separate review section and a separate project update section, we're putting them all into one. The project update portion is this. We're writing a book about zombies, and in order, any creative artist who, who sets out to insert a work of their own into a pre-established genre, we like to take a look at the entire genre, see where it fits, and make sure that we're true to the nature of the genre, even if we uh, mix it up a little bit and make it uh, unique from our storytelling perspective. So... What got us started on this for this week's Sajcast is a comment that you had made in pre-production, what we are calling pre-production, because we're like that. Um, but you mentioned zombie fatigue. I did. I, I'd seen it a couple places. Um, I think I actually even heard it on uh, the Stacks of Comics, uh, one of their podcasts. But um, we're seeing more and more, um, I guess, with Walking Dead, which I've stayed away from, not because I don't think it's good, but because we're writing a zombie story, and I'm just like a sponge, and I pick up everything that I touch. Well, now, I've seen The Walking Dead, and I think that it is good. Um, there are elements of it that are unique, um, and there are, there are parts of it that's good. It's well-written, it's well-acted, I like the story, but it falls firmly within the classic zombie's tale. Okay. And so... As it, it, it would then be contributory to the fatigue because it is not so much different from your classic zombie genre. Right. And I mean, we're on the coming off the wave of, uh, zombie land. I mean, Shauna that it was a couple years ago. There's, um, what else? Resident there was supposed Evil. to be a World War Z. I don't know where that is. Right. And, and so, uh, what we're concerned about is why would there be zombie fatigue? So sh recently, after it seems to be hitting big. Now, uh, like other uh, works of literature, the original zombie movie was back in the '60s, um, and they even had some in the early '20s of the you know early part of the 20th century. But um, it's not a, it's not a long lifespan for there to be fatigue, and with its recent popularity and the improvement in special effects. We're thinking that uh, maybe zombie literature had a way to go, but if there's stagnation and fatigue, well, that's something we want to take a particular interest in and figure it out. So uh, first thing to look at is where are we right now, 2012, in the zombie genre? Yeah, and so there's, like I said, there all those movies that come out, um, Walking Dead's hugely successful, mm -hmm. um, both as a comic uh, series as it had been and, and now uh, on TV. Uh, there's plenty, having been at the comic book store yesterday, there's plenty of new comics that are coming around it. Um, some of them are more interesting than others. You've got things like the new Dead Wardians, which are trying to take uh, zombies, add vampires, and put it in the Edwardian period. So, you know, there's there's that sort of thing. But on the whole, um, what what sort of happens is zombies are just, you know, fodder. They're targets. They're things that we have to knock down to get through this whatever situation. Right. I, I mean, the, the, the problem is is that the classic zombie is a relatively unstoppable, undead creature that can be killed. And so you, in whatever kind of shape you're in, versus a zombie, you're likely to win because they're slow-moving for the most part. They don't have superpowers. Well, they're, sometimes. Sometimes they do, but they're reanimated corpses, and 
you know, you could beat them to death or, you know, stay inside because they can't work doorknobs and, and things like that. But where zombies truly become formidable is in Horde. And so... Well, the- even one-on-one, I mean, let's look at what a zombie is, right? So there, there are sort of two flavors, right? They're literally raised from the dead. Right. Or they're um, affected by some sort of virus where they kind of seem that way. And uh, either case, they're mindless. They're mindless. They, they um, generally are without speech. They generally don't feel pain. Right. And so that that makes fighting them much more difficult because... Right. Because killing them, killing them is the only thing you can do. Yeah. Right? If you're fighting another person, you could you could maim them, you could you could incapacitate them, uh, and the fight could be over, but they could still be alive and you could feel better about it. With zombies, it's an all or nothing. You have to kill them. Right. And they're exceedingly dangerous to engage at least in close quarters combat with because they scratch or bite you and now you're well, depending on the storyline, you're infected. Right. So they're there's the they're gonna eat you and kill you, which is kind of the easy way to go, or you're going to be bitten and spawn yourself into a new zombie. Right, and if we had to talk about why zombie literature is popular, it's because of this aspect. If all they want to do is kill you, that would be one thing. They could be Swamp Thing for all that matters. They could be Godzilla. Uh, But the notion of them being able to turn you into one of them is something that works well for werewolves and vampires, and and Mm -hmm. you know there's an archetype back there in human history. The notion of Ordinary humans becoming the creature that they most fear. Yes. But to, to your original point, yes, zombies are fodder. Most zombie movies are the equivalent of snuff films in which what is interesting is the ways in which zombies get killed. There's rarely an escape from zombies. There's rarely a, they lived happily ever after, right? There's, there's, you are uh, most zombie films are siege films in which you are barricaded in somewhere that you that is temporarily safe. You are surrounded by zombies, and if they get in, one of two things is going to happen: you're going to die, or you're going to become one of them. And so, all zombie films are siege films, uh, and I guess the only other way to do that is to make it an escape film. But the sense is that there's nowhere to go. There's no. Well, oh, and even to then, go. yeah, I mean, th- those are the two. There's been a few escape, or at least escape sequences. Uh, but yeah, generally siege is the main way of going about it. Right. And the, and the, the, just historically speaking, because I can't help myself, but siege warfare is all about lasting out the other side. Whoever can last the longest is likely to win. And if you look at what makes a zombie, which we're going to cover in some detail, it seems like the zombies would have the upper hand. Well, and that, yeah, and I guess as a minor aside, um, as a student of physics years ago, um, that was one of the things about uh, most zombie uh, literature, films, whatever, that bugged me was the zombie doesn't seem to um, tire. It obviously is driven by hunger, but I think other than maybe um, 28 weeks later, I don't remember them actually dying of hunger. And even in 28 weeks later, it was, well, 28 weeks right. of you not having eaten. And so the law of thermodynamics just says, you know, you've got a closed system. The available energy tends towards the minimum. I mean, we can't get around that in the universe. Right. And, and it, what it means is that zombies are hungry. Yeah. Because part of their 
part of their shtick is they want to eat you. And if they got full, well, then they're, they're no more harmful than tigers. You feed them, then you can walk among them. That's how it works. And so zombies must be continually hungry, even though it defies all reason. Well, it wasn't even the hunger that defies reason for me. It was the fact that they still have the energy to stand there and go, you know, 16 days later. So to your point, in a siege, they've got the upper hand. Well, and they don't, they, you know, they cut off your supplies. You can be in a Kellogg factory with several cows to make milk, and you're still going to run out of food before they do. Right. Well, and although you've now fallen neatly into my trap, because the other thing about zombies is, if you're ensieged by them, and I don't know if that's a word, it sounds French, <laughs> but if you're ensieged by zombies, nowhere is it really clear that the it's the same batch of zombies that were outside. You don't know that um, zombie number five, fourth row, third from the left, is the same guy who was there yesterday. He might have been relieved. He might have been replaced. So the, the, the point to be made here is not how to form up a cordon of zombies for a successful siege warfare against a Norman castle in the 12th century. It is zombies are not individuals. They are a horde. They are a, they are a hive mind, if at all. And they, uh, they succeed by sheer relentless numbers. Much like I imagine the Pentagon thinks about China. So, um, lack of individuality is one of the, one of the things that we're going to stick a pin in and come back to and say that one of the, uh, what makes a modern zombie is it is not an individual. It is only a member of a class, as it were, part of a horde, uh, that is, and I'm going to use this now over and over again, my word of the week, in sieging you. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the things that's leading to fatigue is that we're seeing, you know, the same siege film over and over, the same escape sequences um, again and again. And, you know, um, you said a snuff film, and I would go further to say, you know, it's it's a bastardized form of pornography. We know that, um, well, there's some question about when the humans will k- get killed. But we know in a zombie film, we expect zombies to get killed, and they're going to mix it up, right? They're right. going to look for new and interesting ways. You know, can we use, you know, a cleaver? Can we use a can of soda? What is it, you know, that no one's done before? Right. A wood chipper, um, uh, you know, a, a portable fan, um, you know, it's it's how to get creative. And, and the movie Zombieland, which is, which is pretty good, was on... TV the other day, and there was a montage of killing zombies in yep. many different ways. And that is what occurred to me. That's the meat, as it were, of the zombie film. Well, how that, do, you, how yeah. do you kill them? How do you kill them? How do you survive? And how do you, if possible, get away? Right, because killing them... And I and I wondered, um, because Zombieland was a little bit different uh, in its take on things. I mean, still zombies, except for the Bill Murray part. Um, but... You know, did they throw that montage in there um, as an homage to the the genre? Or, you know, was it really that they thought these were really awesome ways to show zombies being killed? Maybe. But but also keep in mind, uh, there one of the one of the expressions of zombie literature that we haven't mentioned is video games. And yep. so I have been playing um, House of the Dead one, two, and three. And my children, naturally, whenever I play a video game, they come over to see what I'm doing in hopes that if I'm experiencing joy, they will take it away from me. And so 
it's I get questions like, Dad, you just shot that poor man. Well, he's not a man. He's a zombie. And all zombies need killing. And I have to kill him before he gets to me, or he's going to turn me into a zombie. And let's be clear, somebody else will probably then kill me. A zombie's fate is to die. Yeah. And that is their only fate. Their fate is to die. Their destiny may be to kill you, but in the end, they're going to die. They have nowhere to go. And this makes them uninteresting as villains, because they're not really villains. They're more like the villain's minions, except there is no mastermind. Right. So that makes them uninteresting. We like to see stories in which there's a protagonist and an antagonist, and that they are at equal levels. And the only comparison that comes through in most zombie films is one uninfected human and his only available counterpart is a horde of zombies. Right. Or who, several uninfected uh, humans right. and a bigger horde. And a bigger horde. But it's all a numbers game. Yeah. And it's not an intellectual game by any means. The only the only cleverness comes in uh, how do we keep them from getting to us? And then while we are preventing them from getting to us, how do we slaughter them in new and exciting ways? Right. It's it's clearly humans that have to carry the film. Um, otherwise, the, you know, there's no interest at all. Because, like you said, they're, they're just targets that are in the way. And I think that's what's part of the fatigue is we, we've done, I don't want to say every permutation, but we've certainly done a good number of permutations on how we kill them, where we get insieged, and um, how we escape. Or right. And then, so those, when you're making a zombie film, you have, you have these materials to work with. These are your essential ingredients of a zombie film is the siege, which gives you the location of the siege, what you are insieged with, who's in the castle, as it were, with you, and what, what quirks of their nature uh, come into play. Um, but we're not most interested at all in really who the zombies are outside, where they came from, how they got to be the way they are. We are most interested in having them fulfill their life plan, which is to die, well, again. Right, and, and to look back a little bit, I mean, if we go back to Night of the Living Dead... Um, in 68, the original, right? So the Romero film. He didn't cover any of that. No. Right? I mean, they were just popping up out of the ground in another uh, physics-defying move. Um, because we do send a lot the caskets from the outside. And they're pretty well sealed. But anyway, yeah, they, they just show up, right? We don't get any good explanation. There's a couple clues on the radio and the TV. But, you know, Clearly it's not Clearly it's not, not about them. That's right. That so so in terms of detracting from their status as as villains or supervillains, just showing up one day doesn't really help us. All good all good villains have a foundation story, and zombies don't. Well, I mean, I guess if we follow on in the Romero tradition, we start to learn that in general they're what I would call magic. You know, I mean, just something supernatural happens. Uh, either there's a government agency or a corporation that's behind some sort of viral outbreak. And I think that's pretty much it. Well, not to be cynical, though, that almost strikes me as a... They were effective... They were effective enemies in the first film. They were scary. And they they were effective in killing most of the humans. And so... Somebody at some point must have said, well, what's their backstory? I mean, how did they get here? Where did they come from? If they're scary, why are they scary? Um, they can't just exist. They have to have some kind of foundation story, which is kind of what we're saying. 
And I think that subsequent to Night of the Living Dead, they came up with, well, here's how this could have happened, which is the second element of zombie literature, which is exactly a contagion of some kind. Well, and, you know, what most filmmakers don't do is they don't go to the American um, Standards Association of Zombies and conform because there is no such thing. Right. So without, you know, doctrinally, there's nothing to rely on. Um, we have Bram Stoker as the archetypal vampire, right. and nobody varies too, too much from those characteristics. But, you know, we've got Romero zombies, you know, which are the, the slow-moving amblers. We've got fast zombies. And so exactly what a zombie is is a lot harder to sort out. Um, we know that, that, you know, they have the ability to kill, to infect. They're generally mindless. They operate in hordes. That's about a big offense as we could put around that. Right. And, and I mean, they're, they're uh, driven by hunger. They're, they're hunter predators. Yeah. Um, uh, but it seems like in some cases, if you don't attract their attention, they may not notice you. And so they seem like mindless feeders, feeders and propagators. Right. They're hungry and they want to make more zombies. What makes them interesting or what can make them interesting is what started to happen at the end of I Am Legend where it seemed like the, and what we're calling zombies, they weren't classic zombies, but where it seemed like they had a hierarchy or there was a zombie in charge, a zombie king as I called him, and where he started to seem to be intelligent. Yeah, they had a whole society there. Right, and that that I think might be the direction for the zombie genre to go is to re-individualize the zombie, make one different from another. Instead of six zombie fourth row on the left, we now have a zombie in charge, and he's an individual. And he is finally an antagonist worthy of our protagonists, which based on recent zombie films, we may have to up the quality of our protagonists as well. <laughs> but uh, in... In looking at where, so that pretty much sums up where we are now. Well, I would say the other thing that I Am Legend did exceedingly well, although somewhat peripherally, was the idea that there was a cure. Mm -hmm. And And that they were worth saving. Yes, that they could be saved. And so, much like a zombie is a dead person brought back to life, a cured zombie is an undead person brought back to humanity. And that would bring them full circle as well. Yeah. And I know, I mean, we've seen evidence in the Twitter sphere and other places that there are books out there now um, that I don't know if they take it especially seriously, but, you know, the I was a zombie, I'm cured, and now I need to see a sea shrink, right? I need therapy because I'm troubled by the fact that I ate people. Right. Um, so... In that way, I guess those aren't even zombie stories. Zombie is the backstory. Right. But but more and more people are seeing that that connection and uh, you know wanting to come back to it. So. Which is which is ironic because that's how zombies started. Zombies started as single individuals with a backstory who either died and were resurrected or uh, were undead and came back to life. Um, and so there is a pretty tangible uh, progression in history. Give several examples. Name three. <laughs> well, one, Gilgamesh, uh, in which the zombies, as they were, were simply the dead who were going to be unleashed upon the living as a threat. Um, 
So not just, they weren't so much individualized at that point. What was individual was the, the entity who was directing them, the person in charge. The goddess. The the goddess, uh, Ishtar, is that right? Yep. So the goddess Ishtar was the, kind of the queen of the zombies. And for those of you who are geeks out there listening, the equivalent is the Borg queen from the Star Trek movies. (laughs) Um, but it's, again, the zombies themselves are not in charge of themselves. They are simply a weaponized horde. And so that's why we go back that far to find our, uh, original examples of the un, of the dead made undead. Yeah, also as an English major note, and to tie into the, the porn references of earlier, Gilgamesh has some really excellent porn sections, I have to remember. Yes, and so this is no longer a family podcast. Well, but if, if you're paying you, the... If you can get a copy of the Epic of Gilgamesh in your local library, go for it. Well, and to be clear, you're reading the Epic of Gilgamesh. You're not doing anything seedy. Um, next in our line of archetypal zombies, we have... Uh, we, we have the Bible, and not the Old Testament, because the Old Testament was almost exclusively about making living things dead. There was no bringing them back. Uh, the Old Testament was all about smiting uh, yeah. by a vengeful God, and uh, it was done quite well. And so one of the departures that the New Testament made was, we're going to bring people back to life. We are about resurrection and redemption. It really is. I mean, thematically. Thematically, it's about about. resurrection and redemption. And so the Lazarus tales are about someone who has died and is brought back to life. Well, in a larger sense, I mean, the New Testament is about Jesus who dies and comes back. Um, And we're not going to get into zombie Jesus here. It's been covered by South Park and others. Not to mention that we have already covered politics in this particular (laughs) Sajcast. And for us to delve too thoroughly into religion and porn... And porn, (laughs) would um, tarnish the reputation that we've only recently established in Sajcast number one. Yeah, so um, Lazarus of Bethany, yeah, risen from the dead by uh, Jesus. Um, and I forget how long he was dead, four days or four something. Four days. It was, it was a while, long enough that you, you know, you were dead. You were dead enough. And... I mean, one of the things that you pointed out is we know who this guy is because he's got a name. Right. There's actually two Lazarus. We'll stick with the the one that Jesus um, raises. There's also a story that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus, two Lazarus in the Bible. Lazarus. And they both come back from the dead, which is kind of weird. But yes, anyway. I think I think that was set up to answer a certain question of um, the afterlife as Jesus uh, promulgated it, and it may have been a bit too nebulous for the people of the age to say, "Well, I'll die here, but I'll I will then live on somewhere else." Maybe they wanted to see a a bit closer to home, a bit more real time, a bit. That guy fell down dead, and now thanks to the grace of God, he's up and walking around, not doing anything um, dramatic, uh, not doing anything ethereal or supernatural. He can now just go to the grocery store. Once yeah, again. apparently, actually, interestingly enough, he doesn't actually say anything after he's risen um, from the dead. But what you're saying is the people of Bethany were you know, the show-me state of the Middle East. That's right. They they said, all right, king of the Jews, whoever you might be, show us some tricks or um, we're not going to feed you. And so uh, this was one of those. And um, like the Lazarus um, story... And the later stories that we're going to talk about, uh, the Gollum and Frankenstein, 
It's more about the person who does the reanimating than the object of that reanimating. This is a story about Jesus. Lazarus is a vehicle. Right. But and, and why, still an individual. Yeah, I mean, if we go back to why... Why, why resurrection, right? I mean, zombies in whatever form we're looking at them are the dead returned from death. And so that's a pretty, um, fundamental human trait. Uh, it's, it satisfies a fundamental human, human need because death is inevitable. And it is one of the few things that really is inevitable. Uh, and it seems perfectly human. To want to get out of jail free, to, right. to so, either yeah. make it not happen or to undo it—you know, the great archetypal do-over. Yeah, and the other, I think, archetypal piece of this—not um, that Lazarus himself. The other archetypal piece of this—not that Lazarus participated in this himself—is the flesh eater, right? Um, and we're not going to touch Jesus there, and that's it either, but. The idea that they're there to consume you, because we're top predators for the most part. And so, you know, somewhere in our subconscious, in that reptilian part of our brain, we don't want to be chased. I mean, there's only a few animals that can do it. Um, snakes, lions, you know, things like that. And for the most part, we're pretty subconsciously afraid of them. Like, right, because, sight. because if you look at, and, and these, let's be clear, and I don't know if we said this outright, but zombie movies, zombie literature, is horror literature. It's in, intended to scare us. Yes. And so what scares Earth's predominant hunter-predator than being hunted and being eaten? Right. They're pretty scary things. By They're, something that is already dead, so you can't at least technically kill it. Right. And so something unstoppable or, or presumed to be unstoppable that wants to hunt you down and eat you is pretty... It, it goes against the fabric of the supremacy that humans have enjoyed all these many years. And that's why it makes for good horror. So after the Lazarus stories, which uh, in the New Testament, the Jews uh, couldn't let that go and had to come up with their own. Um, <laughs> took them a while. Took them a while. Um, uh, after the whole supremacy of Christianity and the oppression, which my mother still talks about, we are oppressed. Um, in the 16th century in Eastern Europe, uh, some Jews got together uh, in the wake of persecution. Some Cossacks uh, stole their lunch money on the playground, and they built a creature out of clay. Now, to Jews, clay isn't just uh, an inert material. Uh, Jews believe that men, men, people, were formed from clay. It's in Genesis. It's in Genesis, the, the oldest part of the Old Testament. And so if you're going to go make something... And turn it into human clay is a reasonable medium for you to work in. So they created this creature out of clay, and they brought him to life with a purpose. Um, they gave him orders by means of putting a scroll in his mouth, and then he would go out and and uh, follow those orders. Uh, he was, much like the, the Gilgamesh story, a weaponized zombie. Yeah. And so uh, being a historian, like I am... Uh, although not reconciled with the History Channel yet, um, I have noticed that the Jews are history's middlemen. We handle things uh, like your finances. We um, agent your sports. We handle your legal transactions. We are notorious middlemen. 
And what we did with the golem is we created our own middleman. And we sent him out to wreak havoc upon the Cossacks. While we sat back in our village and said, Cossacks, your asses have just been thoroughly kicked by our friend the golem. And just so we're clear, he wasn't doing this of his own accord. He was doing our bidding. And so while you may be afraid of this unkillable creature who is wreaking havoc upon you, he really is working for us. So, um, but again, this is a single creature and he is weaponized to a purpose. He fulfills his purpose and he's pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, he's unstoppable in the sense of, um, I don't know where your heart is. I don't know what sort of circulatory system you've got in there. You're clay. Right. You have no sensitive areas, no weaknesses. So this is something that was without life that's been given life. And so, like I said, not not a standard zombie in the modern world, but looking for archetypes, the golem, right. and and is not well. not a big thinker, uh, a follower no. of orders, a mindless lunk. In fact, the the word golem is passed into Yiddish to mean somebody who's slow and mindless. So this is why the golem of unpronounceable Eastern European town of the 16th century fits in with the zombie lore. Yeah, so that's, for those of you at home, that's the Golem of Prague, not the one in The Lord of the Rings. Yes, this one had no affinity for jewelry um, at all. We're not sure if he had a precious. That's right. Almost certainly. He did not because um, the Jews would not have let him indulge in that sort of thing. They would have said, as Jews do, get out of bed already and get to work. Is there a scroll in your mouth? Is there a scroll in your mouth or am I just sitting here? Get up, get to work. Do you have something to do? Yeah. Okay. You have to wonder how he read those. We it was in Braille. To, we, he used his tongue. We try not to wonder that because the lesson that the rabbis of Prague wanted us to come away with is they are so cool. That yeah, they don't can mess build, with them. They can build a guy out of clay. They can put words in his mouth that translate into action. They are that badass. So Cossacks, take heed. Right on. So, I guess moving forward then, in the vein of something that was dead, or, or wasn't alive, that is given life to, uh, we move on to Frankenstein. Oh, yes. So, Mary Shelley's story, 1818, so two centuries later, um, and lots of interesting things I guess we could say about it, but for those of you who aren't familiar with the original story, um, there's no neck bolts, uh, and he has long hair, actually. <laughs> Uh, Frankenstein's the name of the doc, not the name of the monster. And the monster is basically a series of corpses that were stitched together. Not haphazardly. Um, this was the best that this guy could come up with from the graveyard. So he's actually physically an amazing specimen. You know, he's like, uh, he's like Thor. You know, well built, uh, good looking. Made from the finest parts available. Right. And brought to life, and again in the, the tradition of you careful what you wish for. This is, um, he doesn't go quite as the doc had planned. But this is another, you know, you're back from the dead. And for the first time, at least, you know, this, well, zombie has a motivation, has his own agenda. He's got stuff he wants, like a lady. Mm -hmm. He wants a missus. Uh, and who can blame him, right? So this is the first time I think we see this is we've got a, a personalized character who has 
will, desire, and all of that. Um, and the story is obviously much more complex than, than we what could. we're looking at it for. But from the zombie sense, it's interesting that, you know, these are all things that have had names that we can put a finger on. And they've gotten more and more, um, well, they've, they've evolved into this idea of autonomy. Right. That they, they, he's they, not a horde. He's the opposite. He's the opposite of a horde. And the, the early zombies were all, again, as we've said, individuals um, who who could want things. Uh, and I think um, even in the Gollum story, there's a sense that the Gollum had to be put down because he might have believed he was human. And nobody wants that. So... And you gotta keep a guard to keep people from putting stuff in his mouth. Right. <laughs> yes, because then you could just get him to do any old thing. What did but... I say? <laughs> <laughs> what? Go pee in the well. So, um, but Frankenstein, again, Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein was his slave name. But, um, Frankenstein was an individual. The Frankenstein monster was an individual. He had needs, he had wants, and, um, uh, he wasn't just the fourth zombie on the left. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, from there, I mean, for me at least, there's a couple other ones, but the one that stands out for the most, uh, if we're going to jump another two centuries, is Haiti. And and here we're talking about uh, at least what Wikipedia would classify as zombies and and not, uh, historical zombies and not fictional zombies. And these were people who. Um, are drugged or otherwise are altered with, made to look dead, and then revived from this uh, death-like state, but they're slaves to whoever did this to them. And so, again, there's this idea of a person who had a will, and now they're trapped inside of themselves as kind of a monster. And not only, not just a monster, in this, in the, in the voodoo case, but the instrument of someone else's will, and yes. so, which is a very clear way to do, to point out that you have no will if it entirely belongs to somebody else. Yeah, I mean, and like so, the golem. Yes. And what's sort of terrifying about uh, the zombies in Haiti, and and we actually had a pretty uh, societally, we had a, a great interest in them in uh, the earlier part of this century. Um, Go check it on Netflix. Uh, White you mean, zombie. You mean the previous century? Well, twentieth yes. century. We're talking nineteen twenties. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pre well between the wars. Between the wars, right? Yeah. So, uh, what was it called? White zombie. White zombie was one of them. I saw in the queue last night. I haven't watched it, but there's a number of um, them, and and we were fascinated with this. But I know, f- f- for my perspective, and um, and I gave this some thought. We talked about it in pre-production, but the movie of all time that scared me more than any, I mean, that just really shook me up, was Serpent in the Rainbow. And that came out in 88. Um, we were living in South Florida at the time. Uh, and Haiti's not that far away, for one. <laughs> for one. And, and um, South Florida had a significant uh, Santeria population. Still does. Population, yep. right? Still does. And so the practitioners of zombieism were a all, few miles away all around us yeah and so i mean it's scary i don't know if the the kids in you know kansas city felt the same way when they saw it because uh, we had that element but the other element wasn't this magical virus you know that you just have to suspend disbelief and accept that 
the zombies are here and now they're scary, right? Um, which is, I guess, if I were to look at it in terms of fear, there's sort of childhood fear. Like, uh, if a, a little kid sees a zombie movie, they're going to be scared out of their pants. And you can't really talk them down from that ledge. No, you can't say, well, uh, consider, child, that this zombie was dead and buried in the ground in a box and had to get its way out of the box and then claw its way up through six feet of dirt and then, subsequent to that, attack you. By then, they're way too tired. Yeah, you can, I mean, their tissues all gone. I mean, yeah. You could get away. So there's there's sort of two sorts of horror, right? There's the childhood horror and the adult horror. Um, there's the 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 Disney World um, Haunted Mansion scary, which is, I guess... Entirely as a, supernatural. Yeah, as an adult, we look back at it whimsically almost. And then there's the Marilyn Manson scary. Right, or the Charles Manson scary, or the Haitian voodoo right. scary. In the sense that this could actually happen and has happened and has actually happened. So, um, it's why serial killers are scary. It's why traffic accidents are scary. Right. It's why plane crashes are scary. There's no one to talk you down from the sledge, <laughs> right? Because these are things that have happened. So you can't say, "Oh, don't worry, it's not real." Right, and so I mean, within, and and what zombie what zombie literature does does well is to say oh this could happen they they get you to believe it oh yeah yeah but i'm just saying for the reason this was scarier than night of the living dead or you know anything that followed it was was for that reason that you know like the miami zombie somebody just flipped out and chewed off a guy's face scary yeah because it could actually happen fear born from empathy yeah and so if we were to kind of tie this all together, you've got these Haitian zombies who were people, um, but we started to amass them in numbers. And then from there, I think, I mean, at least I don't know of anything between there and George Romero, right? So then Romero's going to give birth to the modern, you know, zombie institute. And um, without us having the American standards of zombies to go with, we start there, and we have to just, you know, look at what else came after that, and taken cumul- cumulatively, those are zombies. And what we've seen, and, I, and we suppose the reason for the fatigue, is that we've lost individualism, we've lost, uh, I mean, and that sounds sort of ridiculous to say, oh, zombies have lost their individualism. But historically, I think we've shown that they were there at one point. And they were individuals, and now they are just a horde. And a horde is only effective in a siege. Right. And so, in order to proceed within the genre, in order to make up new stories, this is what you're given to work with. You have a mindless horde. They do not have superpowers. They, uh, they Some of them are slow. Some of them are fast. Uh, can they use doorknobs? Um, can they drive cars? Um, what makes them want to kill you isn't really covered. It's We know they do, and that's enough. We know they're hungry all the time, and that's enough. Because, for one thing, zombies never get full. If they did, you could feed them. And then while they're eating, you could escape. And that doesn't happen either. So they are ultimately predators. And in most zombie literature, they just one day show up. Yeah, and I think if we look back at the other Sajcast, um, the the stories that we reviewed there, Locked In, Locked Out, 
Um, what we enjoyed about that was the perspective, right? Which was taking things from the zombie's perspective. Right, and if you're going to draw a theme, once again, the zombie part of it is nearly irrelevant. It's always the human part that matters. Yes. It's the human you are now, not the zombie that you were, that is central to the tale. And in most zombie movies like Shaun of the Dead and The Walking Dead and Night of the Living Dead and Zombieland, it's not about the zombies. The zombies are just an impediment. Yeah. Uh, They're good for entertaining ways. You know, can you feed them through a wood chipper? Can you run them over with a car? Can you drop them from a great height and have them go splat? But we don't care what they used to be. And the only hint that we get is maybe how they're dressed or, or some other hint of their former life. But it is all irrelevant. From the business end of a shotgun. <laughs> and that's why the genre is doomed, in a sense. Unless they change that aspect of zombies, there's n- how many more stories are there to write about being ensieged by a horde of undead creatures? Amen. Testify. <laughs> I can't do that theme. It's awesome, though. No. Uh, And so, food porn. Um, Let's start with... The best thing you ate this week. The best thing I ate this week, which is probably the best thing I ate today. Um, Which means... And that's not the first time that's come up in the Sajcast, which means that we either have really short memories or there's some really good food in proximity. (laughs) And right across the street from Studio Z, where we are broadcasting at this very moment, is a new hamburger joint. And joint is the wrong word, but it's called Whack Burger. Whack! Whack! W-H-A-C-K Burger dot com, if you're interested. There's an exclamation point on the side. Yes. And they are a gourmet burger place. And we know this because they have um, beef burgers, turkey burgers, and black bean burgers for the gourmets. They have a burger that has apple and brie on it. Well, yeah. So their theme is you, you pick a meat, you pick a style, and then a side. Right. So the meat was beef Turkey or veggie. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know if I can remember all the styles, but um, you had apple and brie. Apple and brie. You had blue cheese. Uh, you had the classic, which is bacon and cheese. I had something called a Navuidazen, which was sauerkraut, Swiss cheese, and a spicy uh, mustard. They also have a Cuban, which has smoked pork. Yes. And again, more spicy mustard and pickles. Um, they have a fried green tomato burger. Um, but it's interesting and it's not because one of the things that we noticed being students of the world around us is, is that this burger joint opened across the street from another burger joint. And we said, well, gee, how can they compete like that? It's a whole different world. Yeah. Well, one's more of a, a bar slash, I don't know if I'd call it a burger joint unless you mean Covington Chili. No. So there's actually three oh boy. <laughs> within a few feet of here. Yeah, within falling down distance. It's not even walking distance. Yeah, yeah. If you walk outside and trip over something, when you hit the ground, you will be at one of these places. Yeah, so that's the uh, the backstage cafe. Backstage cafe. The Covington Chili. Covington Chili. And, and our favorite. Whack Burger. Whack Burger. With the exclamation point. Yeah, I had the black bean burger with um, the egg and green chili topping with the broccoli slaw. was good. Very good. Yes. I'd also, to tie in to the Stacks of Comics, our sponsor, um, they're a comic-themed uh, burger joint. <laughs> so that's what the whack is all about, um, kind of in the uh, pow, smash, snicked sense of comics. And they have a whole wall that's uh, wallpapered with pages from old comics 
and uh, some of the artwork they have in the back that's spray painted on the walls is all comic-y themed. So. Now, you, there's a good point, because you did mention this earlier, that you do notice things. I was looking for a burger, and I found, <laughs> and I found one. And so, um, again, if it's called foodborne, maybe it should be more elemental than <laughs> what was on the wall. So just so we're clear, I didn't notice anything except the giant hamburgers. And so that's my contribution there. Well, quite yeah, and, and check out the uh, the Sajcast's page because we'll have pictures of these burgers up. And, um, yeah, well, I being a, a comic fan, I did notice, um, I think, the... Uh, the um, the uh, the young lady that was the, acting as the cashier, yes. she had a Spider-Man shirt on. Um, I'm not sure why I noticed that. Uh, but, yeah, they're quite good. And just prepare yourself. You're going to have to have a stack of napkins nearby. Uh, all the burgers are messy. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, the best thing I ate this week, um, and not to downplay the Whack Burger at all, well, it was a, a black bean burger, so it's kind of hard to compete with beef sometimes. Um, and I have been a lot of places in the last, uh, well, since the last Sajcast. So this is an exceptionally hard, um, hard line to tow because I was in South Florida. I was in Toronto. I was in Seattle, uh, Columbus, all up and down. So I had, you know, I had some, some Cuban food, you know, some maraquitas and, uh, you know, arroz con pollo and all that good stuff. Um, which was awesome. And then there was Jamaican food with the, you know, uh, what was that? The brown stew chicken, man. That was excellent. And the rice and peas and all that. But, um, anyway, uh, to, to tie into the trip to Pensacola, I thought I would talk about, uh, kind of two things that happened up there. So one of them was, uh, first night we were there, we're just looking for something kind of easy to eat and, decided that uh, Indian was the way to go and uh, pulled into an Indian restaurant. And this is in Pensacola, Florida, which is in the Florida panhandle. If you're uh, ge geographically challenged, uh, not too far from mobile Alabama. And so deep South, right? As Southern as you can possibly get. Um, so we went into this uh, Indian restaurant looking for, well, one of my favorites, butter chicken and as we sat down, I noticed butter chicken wasn't on the menu, which caused me a lot of distress. Um, and then the waiter came over and asked uh, what everybody wanted to drink. And being in the Deep South, we all wanted tay. And uh, iced tay was from Nestle, or Neste. So that's really a bad sign in the South. Um, the fact that they weren't brewing their own tea was super scary. So we um, ordered water, and then I think we just... We, well, we would have done a dine and dash, except we hadn't really ordered anything but water at that point. Um, and we came out of that place. Well, no, technically you'd order tea and not gotten it. Well, you know, well, they, they, they didn't take that order. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really used. <laughs> yes. So anyway, we came out of this Indian restaurant and, um, there was a buffet across the street, which, um, we've had some experience with buffets over the yes, years. Yes, I was going to make the point that, um, being who we are and and uh, with our history of college and food, if we are going to put our children in a college town, it's, it seems like we have an obligation to scope out the food situation, even though I know your daughter is not going to eat nearly to the legendary capacity that we did. Let's but, hope. <laughs> but when you come back from Pensacola and I say, all right, dear Margaret is now in college, uh, 
how's the food in her town? What's within walking distance? And so here we are. Yeah, I don't know that this is within walking distance, but uh, anyway, across the parking lot was a place called Chow Time, so C-H-O-W-T-Y-M-E, um, which intrigued me because I had no idea what that meant, uh, you know, the, the misspelling of time um, in a buffet context. It was like, well, what does this mean? So we uh, we wandered into there, and what it was was, and I've never really experienced anything like this, this was a buffet where um, East meets South. So imagine the a glorious Southern buffet with, you know, fried chicken and catfish. And because it's on the Gulf Coast, oysters and uh, crawdads and all sorts of lob, or, um, crab legs joined with a traditional Chinese buffet, Mongolian grill sushi. Crazy. That is crazy. So, yeah, on the table you had, like, A1 steak sauce, soy sauce, hot sauce, and uh, hot um, sport pepper vinegar. So it's just an odd combination. Uh, but it was it was really awesome, and, and I mention it uh, only because it was just such an odd experience, um, and it was fun to have access to lots and lots of oysters. But the um, I think the best thing that I ate uh, on that trip was the following night, uh, when we went to, um, we drove down the coast just to kind of see what the uh, Gulf Shore looks like. And we got into Alabama and uh, stopped in a town called Foley. And Foley's only known for one thing. And if you're a fan of the Food Network, you may have run into this before. Uh, but um, it's a place called Lambert's. And Lambert's is on the internet at throwedrolls.com. So T-H-R-O-W-E-D. R-O-L-L-S dot com. And uh, you won't be surprised to learn that their claim to fame is biscuits, or well, uh, rolls. rolls, yeah, the size of your head, and they throw them at you. Mm. And they mean business when they throw them. I mean, I got hit in the chest with one, and luckily, you know, it's an airy roll, and it sort of collapses on impact. But it was the equivalent of an airbag deploying in your chest. Um, it was a massive, you know, amount of dough hitting you. And so um, what they do there is you order an entree, uh, which in my case was fried chicken. Uh, there was also uh, meatloaf, uh, f- uh, catfish, and I can't remember what the last item was. Uh, but you order those. You pick a couple side dishes. Um, so that's, you know, your baked beans, your beets, your collard greens, your, you know, your southern sides. And that's your meal. And then they have this concept of pass-arounds. And what, what pass-arounds are, are big terrains of stuff that they'll come through and just give you as much as you want of whatever it is. And so as soon as you sit down, generally you're going to be greeted by the fried okra guy. And you don't even have a plate at this point, but he's like, no worries. You take a, a paper towel, you put it in front of you, and he just spoons down fried okra. <laughs> and that's not bad. Uh, that's, that's really fun. And so from there, I mean, other things which you might need a plate for, um, you know, there's uh, cabbages and black-eyed peas and, and a few other things that come in the pass-arounds. Um, your, your dinner itself is more than you can probably eat, and then the pass-arounds just completely topple you over. And then, of course, there's the rolls, which they're famous for. They're amazingly good, massive, and if you're patient, so when the guy is walking through, he's just chucking rolls. You put your hand up. If he sees you, he hits you with a roll. Um, or unless someone intercepts it uh, in the meantime, which is which is fair play, apparently at Lambert's. 
but the, there's a guy following him. And if he throws it to you across the room and you haven't eaten it by the time he gets there, the guy behind him has sorghum and apple butter. Now, sorghum, for those of you not from the south, is, is molasses uh, of one form or another. And so, yeah, he's got a spoon that he just turns up and tries to keep the molasses on it, and then he dunks that onto your roll. And uh, same thing with the apple butter. And those were just out of this freaking world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't remember getting to the end of the meal, but there was just loads of food. It was good. It was southern, and it was just a, a crazy good time because, you know, it's it's the chaos there. I will say, if you ever are in Foley, and there's two other locations <coughs> that aren't in Alabama, but um, go early and try not to go on a Saturday, which is one that we had the unfortunate um, luck of heading there. So we got there pretty early. It was like 5 o'clock. Um, which would have been 6 o'clock for us because they're right on the cusp of central time. But, um, yeah, it was 5 o'clock there, and we thought, oh, okay, we'll, we'll beat the crowd. Um, and they gave us our number, which was 22, and they said, there's only 58 people in front of you. Wow. <laughs> but, so does that suggest that somebody had negative 13? I mean, is that how No, they actually roll over at 500, and they were nice uh, enough to say that in their um, Alabama accent. You know, come on around and make sure you get yourself a ticket. And uh, if you see that your ticket's in the 30s, that's all right, because we roll over at 500 and we in the 49s now or whatever. So we were trying to give you a sense that it would probably take you close to an hour for the 60-some people that we had to wait through, 60 tables. But they would call them up quick. You know, it would be like 497, 498, 499, 500, 501, 523, come on up. Show us your hands. Get in here. You know, and this was, it was hot out. It was muggy because you're on the Gulf Coast, and we're all sitting outside. So once you got called up, that's the promised land because it's an air-conditioned area. And uh, if you have a large party, you just send one in because you wouldn't all fit. Um, and then from there, they shuffle you in. But they move through quick, um, even though, you know, I don't think there's many restaurants in the world that would have accepted 60 tables in front of me. Well, although i got to say that they seem like a, a fast-moving outfit. If they're throwing the rolls... Oh, they were throwing them. Then um, there is a sense of expediency going on, and and uh, to that point, it seems like your food experiences are fraught with danger. Uh, <laughs> it does seem that way. In Sajcast number two, there was the story in which you were nearly attacked and beaten by Wilford Brimley and Egg Begley, Egg, Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> Indeed. In Seattle, and now you're in Alabama and people are throwing rolls at you, and the people throwing rolls at you can only count to 500 and then start over. This seems to me to be very dangerous. And I paid for the privilege. Well, and even though we went and had dinner just recently at a place called Whackburger, nobody tried to whack us. Well, that is fortunate. There were some interesting characters in there, too. There so, were indeed. Um, I mean, Covington, uh, Covington, Kentucky, home of uh, Studio Z, is home to many colorful and interesting people. Um, so it's always fun to see them out and about and, uh, and to dine with them as well. And maybe one day to have them be interviewed on a Sajcast. It would be a great man-on-the-street sort of place to run a Sajcast. Yes, it would. We'd have to change it to explicit, I'm sure, because there's no way they could contain themselves. That's right. Well, we uh, are only barely managing to contain ourselves. Yes. So, anyway, uh, that's uh, the best thing I ate this week. And uh, I guess unless there's anything further out there, we're going to remind you that today's Sajcast was sponsored by Stacks of Comics. How can you not like a podcast that's full of love and joy? So that's uh, stacksofcomics.tumblr.com. And that's it for this week's Sarge
Ba-da-na-na, na-na-na-na. 